This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Tom Bernard Show. Filling in for Tom Bernard, I'm Dave Schrader along with Doug Sprinthal, Andy Brown Bernard, and Cassie Schrader. We've got a lot coming your way. Stay tuned to the Tom Bernard Show. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt then talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and <laughs> it's gentlemen. It's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw and Bryant. And in studio with us, from the Walzer Automotive Group, Doug Sprinthal. Hello, Doug. Help, help, help. What, what's wrong? That I'm replaying a phone call that I got from J- Greg Davis, our general manager <laughs> at the Toyota store, yesterday morning. Help, mm. help, help. What's wrong, Greg, I said. I need salespeople, he said. So if you're interested in exploring a career in sales with Walzer, uh, we've got a, a lot to offer. We ditched commissions years and years ago. We pay a salary plus bonus. It's work-life balance, 40-hour weeks. We have a 13-week training program. You get paid while you learn. If you've ever thought about it, we, uh, we're hiring now in anticipation of a really busy spring and summer. Uh, email me directly at dougatwalzer.com, and I will connect you with the appropriate people that say help, help, help. Doug at Walzer.com is Isn't the best way great? to do it. If they're yeah, that's D-O-U-G. Easy. That's kind of the conventional Doug, spelling. Right? Yep. Okay. There's no silent <laughs> There's PFs no or anything no in there? Z in the middle. All right. Does, Doug does at Walzer.com if right. you're looking for a sales career. Right. That's a great plan. All right. Doug Sprinthal, Walzer Automotive Group, Walzer.com. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. I'm Dave Schrader sitting in for Tom. Tom will be back with you tomorrow. We went last night, Cassie and I went to go see um, the sneak preview of Stan and Ollie. Yeah. And, you know, it was kind of a a heartbreak. It was a great crowd. The local Shriners were all there and, and a lot of fun people that were excited about this movie. And I realized, I don't think, I think. My daughter and wife are the youngest people in the audience. <laughs> well, it's Stan and Ollie. Well, I know, but isn't it a shame that yeah. they're two of, of the biggest comedic geniuses, and they're just, nobody really knows who they are. This movie is not getting a wide release. It's going to be at the Landmark here in Minnesota That's it, huh? on Friday. Mm-hmm. But what a beautiful movie, and I love the way they did it. They, they kind of jump into the waning years of their career. So it's like, we don't even need to explain to you who Laurel and Hardy are. Here they are in their waning years, and you hear this, this story. And 
the actors are so good. John C. Riley is Oliver I Hardy. He's phenomenal. You forget oh. you're watching John C. Riley. His every motion and movement is just like Oliver Hardy. And uh, the, the guy that's playing Stan Laurel. Oh, Steve Coogan. Yeah, Steve Coogan. Mm-hmm. They are just unbelievable. I, if I, they don't get some kind of acknowledgement, it's, it's a brutal shame. I, I love, because, you know, Stan Laurel was very animated in his oh, face. Yeah. That's... You know, you could tell. No, it looked what like he, a cartoon. Yes, yeah. he was. Yeah. A, yeah, he was a cartoon, and uh, Steve Coogan really captured that. I think with the facial expressions that Stan had, and I, I loved it. I thought it was beautifully done. It wasn't like over the top. Nope. It wasn't like they were trying to, you know, throw all this. No, I would comedy love to see that. I, I watched yeah. it as a kid. You know, in the '60s, we only right. had three channels, and right. they were on one of them pretty much all the time. So. And it's not schmaltzy. It's not one of those, you know, where they're trying to pull your heartstrings. They yeah. just tell you a story. And it was it was an interesting aspect to watch how these two kind of, they're struggling. I mean, the whole concept is they're, they're going back on the road. It's been like 13 years since they did a movie together. Mm-hmm. They're out on the road in England doing these series of live theater events, trying to get interest up to fund this Robin Hood movie that they want to do. This comedic version and take on Robin Hood, and they start. It wasn't called Men in Tights. Yes, was <laughs> that, that was the setup for it. But uh, they set up this whole deal, and they start going to these theaters. It's only been thirteen years since their last movie together, and they're getting like twelve people in the theater to see. Oh them. no! And then as they keep progressing and, and putting more PR push behind what they're doing, and they're they're sixty one and sixty three yeah. at this time. By the time they finally hit London, they're packing 2,000-seater oh, ar- arena. So it was, that was nice to watch happen, but it kind of breaks your heart. And then they're trying to put together this money, and they're like, eh, I guess nobody really wants the, this kind of movie anymore. And he walks out, and there's a big billboard for the brand-new Abbott and Costello movie. And uh, Stan Laurel just looks at it, and you could just see the heartbreak. And he's like, are you kidding me? Those two Jamokes? Yeah, right? They get the shot. They're us. That's all that, that yeah, Abbott and Costello right. was, was kind of a, a, a reimagination. And I'm not picking on them. They were great. And I love the old Abbott and Costello movies. But, wow. Oh, yeah, because you could, like, when he looked up at that poster, his facial expression, he realized their time had passed. And, you know, time to move on. But, yeah, it was, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I'd Mike. say out of out of five stars, I'd give it a solid four, four and a half. Is stars. it as good as uh, Robert Downey Jr. when he did well, uh, Chaplin? Chaplin? Um, yes, good. They just mm-hmm. don't go as deep as they did with Chaplin. I thought that was a great portrayal, though. I thought he was and, really good. And uh, this movie is only an hour and thirty-seven minutes, so it's not super long. Unlike Captain Antsy Pants, I can sit in a theater for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, some <laughs> of these, you know, some of these uh, biopics, biopics are get really long. Yeah. Can be like two and a half hours. And I watched something really interesting last night on Netflix. It was I can't remember what it's called, but it's about Bill Murray. And all the oh, pop-up appearances that he does. And he interviews all the people. And he goes, yeah, I was sitting in this bar. And I turn around, and there's this guy, and it's Bill Murray. And he starts talking to me. And we're hanging out, and I leave. And he follows me out and helps me walk my dogs. And comes back, and he asks, asks if he can tend bar. And then they have, you know, it's all, it's really, it's quite moving. Is, is that the being Bill Murray? Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that uh, I love when these guys throw themselves into it and, and they can do it. And what's really kind of smart about this Stan and Ollie movie, they're taking them to the waning years. If they mm-hmm. really wanted to, these two could come back and do the beginning of their career right. as kind of a prequel. But it would be great to see Robert Downey Jr. reprise his role as Charlie that Chaplin would be cool. because Chaplin and, and Laurel, Stan Laurel, right. worked together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they were contemporaries <laughs> coming up doing that. So it'd be it'd be interesting to see them kind of invest that. I hope this movie does well well enough that they might consider doing that because I wouldn't mind seeing the beginning because there are so many people that missed it. I was telling Cassie when I was a kid, we we did this cyclical thing on Friday nights. You know, My mom would pick a restaurant one Friday. My dad would pick a restaurant the next Friday. I got to pick the third restaurant, and I always picked the ground round. <laughs> Do you remember the ground round? Sure. Peanut shells there's all over one the floor. Of a, there's one or two, I think, still open really? in the cities. I think there's one on Robert Street still, I think. We used to go there, and they would have the movie screen playing, and they'd always play Laurel and Hardy films, or Abbott and Costello, or Charlie Chaplin. And I remember going in there, and that was it. My, I just sit there shelling peanuts, watching that, and and that was my heaven going into those. Yeah, it sounds. But great. it's a shame nobody really knows. You know, my daughter, 
Pacey when we said, do you want to go see this? She goes, what's it about? And I go, well, it's about Laurel, Laurel, and, you know, Laurel and Hardy. And she goes, mm, pass. And I said, well, you know, you didn't think you wanted to see a movie about P.T. Barnum either. So just and you fell you in love with on The Greatest Showman. What's the famous episode of theirs? Is it the music box where they're music right. moving yes. a piano? Yes. That's it's my hysterical. Favorite. I know. That's my favorite. And they do, they do some nods. They don't do full-on routines, but they do some nods to some of their famous bits. Mm-hmm. And they do them really in a clever way uh, to... to Redo it. And then as you're watching, go. I, I also tell people, watch through the entire credits because you see these bits that they act out. And then during the credits, they're showing the original bits. Mm-hmm. And you see just how good these two actors were in reproducing exactly what was done. So well, well worth it if, if you're like that. Did you, did you ever watch any of the old comedies like that, Andy? Uh, not too much. I've seen a few episodes of The Stooges and Laurel and Hardy and that kind of thing. But not like sat down and watched... Uh, one afternoon. See, it, it, I kind of grew up in a weird household because I really? grew up. Yeah. <laughs> well, we lived with my dad's uh, parents, and so they're from the Depression area. So I did a, you Let me know. Just carry on the Tom Bernard tradition of keeping <laughs> my phone ringer on during the show. Sorry about that. So I, you know, I grew up with you know grandparents that were from the Depression, World War II, and then my parents were baby boomers. So I didn't you know do or you know in our household we didn't do a lot of the things that my friends were doing because their parents were younger so i grew up watching laurel and hardy the Mm -hmm. marx brothers um you know the three stooges abbott and costello because my dad loved that stuff so i used to sit and watch laurel and hardy all the time and i used to i had the music box on vhs oh you did yes (laughs) did you ever watch buster keaton Probably, yeah. yeah. He was he was a silent star, and he did his own stunts. The most famous one, he's standing outside of a building, and the whole front of the building, and this oh, is yeah, real, yeah. collapses, and mm-hmm. he, he he goes perfectly right through the window. <laughs> and you look at it and you go, that's kind of hokey, and they go, oh, wait a minute, that didn't have computer-generated effects. This guy right. was stupid enough to just stay on there and say, okay, should be good. Yeah. <laughs> let her go. They. Uh, do you think he did it with that thick Minnesotan accent? Well, I, I would like, hope okay, so. Okay, let her go. <laughs> Buster Keaton over here, you know. <laughs> Crepes, I tell you, that I, was close. I, I remember a biopic they did of Abbott and Costello, and I think it was like the late 70s, early 80s, had Harvey Corman as Bud Abbott. I never saw and that. And then they had Buddy Hackett as Lou Costello. Oh, my God. And that was a real campy, schmaltzy deal. But Really? With Buddy Hackett? I know, right? Mr. Subtle? But who else <laughs> would you think of to play Lou Costello at that point? Right? So I would love to see them do a, a couple of biopics on these characters before they're completely forgotten to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Three Stooges. Did you see that movie Nathan they did Lane a few years ago? It would do a good. Now. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I would, you asked the question, and I'm, yeah. I'm like, okay. I'm a casting director. Who do I get? Yeah. Nathan Lane. Yeah, or maybe yeah. even Jack Black might be able to pull it off. Is he campy enough? Oh, yeah. Jack Black? <laughs> He's very campy. I know. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see some biopics. I really enjoyed. They did that remake of, of The Three Stooges with the three different actors playing the roles of Mo, oh, Larry, yeah. and Curly. Yeah. That Man, either. was that a great was movie, it? though. Really? You know who surprised mm. me? Well, you have Will Sasso, yeah. who played Curly. And Will is the big fat guy mm-hmm. that was bald from uh, Mad TV. So he already is kind of built for right. that role. They had um, the guy that plays Jack on Will and Grace. Okay. Uh, what is his name? That's who that is? Yes, plays wow. Larry Fine. And his voice, intonation. Sean Hayes. Sean Hayes is exactly like really? Larry. It's yes. unbelievable. Wow. Wow. And then the guy that plays Mo, I can't remember his name. He shows up and Chris stuff all the time. Chris Diamantopoulos. Yeah, good old Chris Diamantopoulos. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he plays Mo, and they do an excellent job. So if you are a I'll Three Stooges fan, watch the movie because they—it's a beautiful homage to the Three Stooges. It's not a biopic. It's as if the Three Stooges were making a movie today, hmm. and they're really great. The- so the first Christmas that uh, Sarah and I spent together, I got her. Son's uh, box DVD of the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. Sarah looks at me funny, and about three days later, we're down in the basement. We're just laughing our asses off, and she opens the door and looks at us and goes, "Oh yeah. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say that uh, three days later you start hearing boink, ding, yeah. from the basement. Yeah. Well, speaking of comedians, Louis C.K. is back in the news. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. He just went there. The comedian has avoided talking about his own scandal as part of his controversial return to stand-up venues. But the Daily Beast is reporting that that all ended 
in San Jose last night. I like to work off, and I don't mind, or and I don't like being alone, is what his statement was. He said in front of people, the you know he like to yes, self pleasure no. himself. For listeners that don't know right. uh, what what this scandal was all about, so he he just says, "Hey, I like uh, I like doing it, and I don't like being alone." The comedian said early in the performance, the reference, of course, to his admitted uh, self pleasuring in front of people without their consent. The line received a good laugh. Writes Stacy Soley, who adds that Louis C.K. also addressed the larger topic of his comeback. You've read the worst possible things you could about a person, about me, and you're here, he told the audience. The whole point of comedy is to say things that you shouldn't say. That's the entire point. The comedian even referenced the controversy that erupted when he made a joke about survivors of the school shooting in Parkland, Florida. If you ever need people to forget that you pleasured yourself, uh, what you need to do is make a joke about kids that got shot. So, yeah, not I don't know. I, I get his concept with the comedy of, you know, just being balls-out comedy, but there's a difference between that and just taking yourself out and doing what you want in front of strangers or, or well, not people. Even worse than strangers, it's people that uh, that you have some power over. They're like opening act yeah. that he's on tour with. That's It's just... Well, I love this story. A peeping Tom picked the wrong house. Former NFL player had a good conversation with the suspect he found outside his daughter's window. Ooh. Yeah, if you're going to be a peeping Tom, A, don't be, and B, definitely don't outside the home of an ex-NFL player's house. WPBF is reporting on exactly that situation at the Florida home of Tony Beckham, who used to play for the Detroit Lions. The former defensive back says he was leaving his Wellington home at about 6.40 a.m., when he spotted a man hovering near the window of his teenage daughter's bedroom. That's what the Detroit Press, uh, Free Press notes. It'd be really funny if it was Louis C.K. <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, noting that the girl had just come out of the shower, Beckham says the man's pants were partly down, and it looked as like he was um, Louis releasing. C.K. Yeah, and uh, he was looing uh, as he peered in the window. I couldn't believe it. He tells WPBF, I thought I was being punked. The man fled when Beckham yelled at him, but the 40-year-old athlete soon caught up to the man. Well, I'm sure if his pants are on his ankles, it's going to be an easier catch. Beckham says that when they first came face-to-face, they had a good conversation before cops showed up to make an arrest. Meanwhile, the mugshot of the suspect, identified as 48-year-old Jeffrey Cassidy, shows him with a cut lip, a bruised face, and a black eye. WPBF notes he was left with multiple broken bones in his face. Oh, boy. Beckham told police he did uh, only what was necessary to detain Cassidy per the Huffington Post. Cassidy, meanwhile, told cops his car had broken down and he was simply walking around while waiting for it to cool down, WPLG reports. According, I guess that means That's what I always just killing do. time. You see a ladder climb up yeah, it and relieve hey, yourself gonna, watching a teen my girl. My timing yeah. belt broke, so I'm going to look at naked <laughs> teenagers. Here's the scary thing. If she was up in a higher room, how would he even know that that was the time to go look in her window? How would he know any of this information? That makes you wonder how many times That's this right. guy's there been there looking in that window. What are the odds he got caught the very first time right. he did it? Cassidy has been charged with lewd and lascivious behavior with a victim younger than 16 years old and, and is being held in Palm Beach County Jail. And bleeding on a fist. How much do you think his bond is for being caught peeping on a 15-year-old naked girl? 200 grand. Andy, what do you think? Given lack of no, evidence, wait, what state, probably something what like 10 grand. This? Florida. You're closer. Fifteen hundred bucks. That's all it costs. They don't have any proof is the thing. You can't put someone you can't give someone like a huge bond or a bail. Right. Unless unless you had some security cameras around that house that's gonna put this guy there. Mm -hmm. Weird stuff. Well, animals are going wild. We've got some horrific animal attacks coming up next. Stay tuned. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom Bernard here with the founder and CEO of North American Banking Company, Michael Bilski. He was here to talk about a great service at an app that you can get and use from North American Banking Company. It's called XCheck. All right, Michael, my buddy, my pal of mine, why do I need this and why is it cool? We developed the app to compete with the other payment applications across the country. We wanted something that was safe, secure, easy to use, and most of all, free. Say, for example, Alex needs some money. 
and you want to send her some money, you can do it right away in the payment app and would get into her account without her having to go to the bank. Most convenient for the princess in your life. And the Prince Andy, too, because I wouldn't want the kids having to leave the house to get cash. I wouldn't want that. No, there'd be no sense in that. You'd have to buy the gas then, too. <laughs> They're going to love it. This is Tom Why Not Bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience. Check out nabankco.com slash KQ for more about XCheck. Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. Whiting Clinic has changed their name to include their two specialties, LASIK and cataract surgery. Whiting Clinic is best known for their amazing LASIK results and ability to enhance thousands of lives by restoring vision to clarity without the need for glasses or contacts. You've heard me rave about them for years. You know that. But did you know they're also experts in cataract surgery? Yes, indeed. And I'm a perfect example of their good work. You know what I'm saying. I see so clearly now. When my clear LASIK vision started to fade due to cataracts, Whiting Clinic took care of me again and have the most advanced lens technology so I can see far away and up close without wearing any glasses. If you're over 60 and have noticed your vision starting to fade, call the experts at Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. To learn more about your options for cataract surgery and clearer vision, visit whitingclinic.com or call 855-554-2020. That's 855 855- Five five four twenty twenty, and please tell them Tom sent you. Oh God! <laughs> Peeper, how could you take this romantic wedding song and turn it around so filthy, Cassie? Shame on you. Mm, sorry, can't help myself. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. Tom has taken the day off to deal with some things. I'm sitting in. I'm Dave Schrader. Serious health issues. Let's start a rumor. Yeah, (laughs) really. We're all a little concerned about Tom. Uh, I don't know. Hopefully he's not not out beating people that are trying to peep in the windows, and that's the real story. All right, we've got some animal stories to share. I love animal stories, especially when they start off with a headline like, In horrible incident, woman falls into crock pit. Oh, <laughs> what kind of incident could you possibly find yourself in yeah, that has real. you? Are you like a, a, a is this like a, a, a Oliver Hardy and Stan Laurel deal where the involved. ladder falls over the entire enclosure? More I don't get shots it. of tequila and a unicycle. Mm, yes. I like where you're going with that. That would be interesting. Is that what we can expect at the party tomorrow? That's right. <laughs> Shots of How's your tequila? sense of balance? Uh, we'll find out. All right. Mary doesn't really seem like an appropriate name for a giant pet crocodile, and markedly less so after it mauled a woman to death. DZ20. thigh slapper. Yeah, who ran a lab at a pearl farm in Minahasa on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi where the crocodile was illegally kept, was feeding the 1,500-pound reptile on January 10th, when wow. she is believed to have fallen eight feet into its enclosure. That's what the BBC is reporting, citing conservation officials. The crocodile reportedly consumed the 44-year-old's arm and most of her abdomen in the attack that went unnoticed, unnoticed. until colleagues... At CV Yosiki Laboratory, spotted Tuo's body a day later. How did no one see this? When we looked at the crocodile pool, there was a floating object. It was Deezy's body, a colleague says, per the Independent. The 14-foot-long crocodile was sedated and moved to a conservation site on Monday. A search is now on for the Japanese owner of the croc and farm. The owner must this acknowledge isn't... this horrible incident, but we have neither seen him nor nor where he know where he is. The local police chief says, per USA Today, a relative meanwhile shared a scene from Tuo's funeral. So, oh my gosh, how do you? You're at work and you, I'm going to go feed the alligator crocodile, and then you don't show up for the rest of the day, and it takes a day before somebody goes, huh? Island Where's time. Andy? People are a little lax. Wasn't he going to go feed the crocodile? I know. Well, I mean, I missed the part where the crocodile was being kept there illegally, so I'm guessing they weren't. Yeah. Know, they so weren't... why does the owner have to acknowledge? What is he supposed to acknowledge? There has to be. That must be All right. You're right. My crocodile later. Yep, that's Sorry. That's a crocodile, and that's a half-eaten dead person. Yeah. Well, I think next time they have to use the buddy system when they go mm. feed the crocodiles. Do you ever? Uh, do you ever go to the rodeos? I've never been to a rodeo. Bull riding and all that I stuff. I have. I, uh, I can't. First of all, I can't take the smell. It just gets to me in that place. Mm. Sweat and dung and <laughs> hillbillies drinking yeah. beer is not a good mix. That's all I got to say. 
There is a tragedy that took place at the National Western Stock Show. One of the world's leading professional bull riders was fatally injured at the Denver event Tuesday by a bull called Hard Times. Witnesses say Mason Lowe, age 25, was thrown from the back of the bull, which then stomped him when he was on the ground, a New York Daily News reports. Professional bull rider spokesman Andrew Giagola then told USA Today that the bull stomped Lowe's chest. He suffered massive heart heart valve and aorta damage and died of those injuries. What his last words were? What? Send in the clowns. (laughs) Sorry. Where are they now? (laughs) That's the real question. Uh, Lowe was thrown off the bull, and while he was on the ground, the back leg stomped him in the chest while ah. he was trying to get up. Witnesses Gerald, or Gerardo Alvarez tell CBS4, when he got up, he immediately grabbed his chest and stumbled over to the exit and then fell to the ground again, grabbing his chest before he could get out of the area. Lowe, a Missouri native ranked number 18 in the world was in his seventh season in this dangerous sport. The loss of Mason is devastating to us all. PBR CEO Sean Gleason said in a statement, our thoughts, prayers, and deepest condolences are with his family and and wife, Abby. A fundraiser for the family was held Wednesday during the event's final night at the Denver Coliseum. So this guy is brutally stomped to death by a bull, and the event just kept going. They, They knew it happened, and then the next night they celebrated his death you know, in this memorial, and then continued on. I was playing at the Mounds Park Lounge 25 years ago in a cover band, and a guy died by falling off a bar stool. Mm-hmm. And we stopped playing, and the bar owner started yelling at us. <laughs> what are you doing? Keep playing! It's like, there's a dead guy right there. Please tell me you went in the stairway to heaven right no, after that. No, I don't oh. remember what we played. <laughs> Hit me with your best shot. Yeah. Baby. <laughs> Little Benatar. It's closing time. Oh, oh my gosh. That's horrifying. Um... Now we've got one more. All right, so the other two, right? You've got an illegal crocodile. Yeah. You're feeding, right? You're kind of begging for trouble there. You're a bull rider. You, again, you've put yourself in the position of danger. Yeah. Here's, here's a statement I never thought I'd read. Aggressive otter injures three in Florida. Oh, boy. Is your father and mother aware of this uh, activity, Andy? No. The Although scariest part. West Palm Beach downtown, so. Oh, well. I mean, none of these happen in well, downtown areas. Newser uh, reports that otters aren't the first animal to come to mind when most people think of dangerous Florida wildlife, but a run-in with an aggressive and probably rabid one left a woman temporarily unable to walk. Maitland resident Anne Christine Langalewis tells uh, Fox News that she was walking her golden doodle. Well, she had it coming then. Of course she did. (laughs) She had it coming. Of course she was. She was walking her golden doodle on a bridge in the park in the Orlando suburb last week when she saw the animal running fast toward her. She says that in a completely unprovoked attack, the otter attacked her right leg, sinking its teeth into the left leg, and hung on as she ran for about 25 yards. (laughs) Langelius, who moved to Florida from northern Sweden 18 months ago, says she required rabies shots and has had trouble walking because of the severe bites. I've never seen an animal behave like this, so I kind of guessed it was ill when it went for me, Langelius tells the Orlando Sentinel. Maybe it just hates golden doodles. Right. But the sk- yeah, nice job protecting the yeah. mistress. <laughs> it's Mr. a golden doodle. doodle. Oh, I'm out of here. But the scariest part was that it didn't let go. It bit me in the Achilles tendon really badly and then hung on for a long time. Authorities believe the same otter was responsible for at least two other attacks on Maitland residents. Either that or they've got a bad otter gang issue. Oh, my gosh. Posters were put up in the park reading, Caution, Aggressive Otter Reported in the Area. Authorities say that a couple of days after... Lang's Elias was bitten. A police officer shot a rabid otter in a resident's backyard, though they haven't confirmed that it was the same animal responsible for the attacks. Last year, a kayaker, I think we we reported on this one last year, Andy, a kayaker that was injured in a Florida otter attack. Remember that? Yes, Yes, I do. Otters are actually pretty vicious. Yeah. They're cute, but they're mean. Really? Sounds like my first wife. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Pretty vicious and mean. We did. Uh, I, I do a true crime program on Tuesdays. Yes, I know. And uh, you know, I get into that mindset, and I talk true crime, and you're hearing these things, and it's you never want to 
witness true crime unfolding. No. And I'm sitting in my in my home studio one night, and I'm doing my live radio show, Midnight in the Desert, and I start hearing screams, bloody screams for help outside. The, the wild streets of Apple Valley? Yes. Mm -hmm. These brutal, bloody screams of, help! Help! And I'm, oh, my God. I get my wife over, and I'm like, do you hear this? She's like, yeah, you yeah. can hear this blood-curdling scream. Some woman is shrill, screaming for begging for her life yep. so i tell her call the cops i'm doing this all live on air mm -hmm. and my mic's live and i'm like i'm sorry guys this is what i'm hearing i start relating what's going on over the air we hear it a few more times she goes around to make sure that none of the kids are having nightmares checks the whole house everything's quiet but that screaming continues so the cops supposedly do a drive-through she calls back later to check they said well we found nothing i'm like well you got to get out of the car because this, whoever it was, was obviously being bludgeoned right. with a hammer and then dragged somewhere, right? I call the cops again after the show. She goes, I'll, I'll send the police over off, you know, police officer over. So I'm standing by the door waiting. You know, first I was going to be emboldened and open my garage door and stand out there defiantly in case that killer was out there. And then I thought, I'm not going to stand here with the door open if there's a hammer killer in right. my neighbor, right? I got, I got things to pay that's for. That's what happened to that and woman in South Minneapolis. My jerk wife refused to go out there and wait for the cop. So I <laughs> Dude, had to she's wait. right next Oh, to you. sorry. So I'm waiting by the front door. The cop pulls up. I walk outside. And I come on, and he goes, well, hello. And I said, hi. And I shook his hand. And I go, so this is what I heard. And he goes, okay. And he goes, uh, we've got it covered. We, we've done a couple drive-bys. I go, I don't think you realize. This was blood-curdling screams. Whoever this is isn't out in the street somewhere. They were being bludgeoned and dragged somewhere. The cops laugh, and he goes, okay. He goes, well, I've been out here a lot, lot and a long time. He goes, I, I want you to do me a favor when you go inside. I want you to YouTube uh, uh, the sound of foxes mating. And I'm like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? <laughs> and uh, Andy, I don't know if you want to pull up that kind of audio, but uh, he goes, just... <clears throat> Just go go do it. And I'm like, no, this was definitely, this woman was screaming for help. And he goes, uh-huh. And he goes, just go inside and educate yourself. And he starts laughing. And I, I, part of me's pissed yeah. because I know the sound of a freaking woman screaming for help. <laughs> Plenty of them screamed at you. Right, right exactly. <laughs> and then I get inside and, and I start playing the YouTube audio. <laughs> wow. Now imagine that from inside. It sounds like, help, right? <laughs> Where is it? Only ours, ours was much more vocal. Those and effing was, foxes. Right, was in the throes of some crazy passion because yeah, it, apparently. Uh, it was screaming bloody murder. And then, <laughs> oh, so I was horrified for the entire, I was so, my, my blood was boiling until I heard that. Then the other night, just as I'm ready to launch into my late night show, they've moved closer to my home. Of course now. they have. So they're like dry humping in my yard, and these two are screaming at my window. But it is horrifying. Animals are how – no wonder people don't respond anymore right. when they hear something horrible going on because you're like, oh, it's just foxes. It's just foxes Foxes getting, getting excited out there, right? And uh, no, it was horrific. So I don't – Years uh, ago, I, I was living in Maplewood, and it was the springtime. Uh-huh. And in the morning, two days in a row, this robin is, like, attacking the kitchen window. Just like, it's like what's this, like, the birds? What happens when that damn thing gets in here? And I just got high-speed internet. No more oh, dial-up. Wow. So I went in there. Mm. Robin attacks kitchen window. Mm -hmm. And, again, like the cop, this is what I learned. So robins are migratory, and the boy robins show up before the girl robins do and stake out their territory, and they're not very smart. <laughs> so when they no. fly by a window, when the light is just so, they see their own rival male, and they think that it's a rival, oh, and yeah. they try to attack it. Yep. So the solution is just hang a towel over the window for a week or so. It kills the reflection. And yep. No more robins. Robins are dumb. <laughs> we have Daniel on the phone. We do. All right. Well, I, you know, we've, we've got, what, a minute and a half here. I really don't want to get too in-depth with this. So, Daniel, if you don't mind hanging on, we will come back to you and uh, give you the full segment that we've got coming up in uh, just a few moments. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the, sure. Can you hear me? Just yeah. wanted to make – okay. Yeah, we did, Daniel. But okay, I, I, like I, I said, I don't want to do the disservice. Weird... Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fine. All right. Uh, so we'll, we'll get back to that. And uh, – yeah, the, the animal attack, we've had strange deals where I know there was a kid down the street from me who used to get attacked every day on his way 
to school from a big black crow. Would fly really? down and peg him in the hair, head. He had red hair. They ended up doing like an episode. I, there was an episode of one of the TV shows that ended up having the same storyline. Huh. I'm like, they had to have seen this in the newspaper because the kid I grew up with had to report it. This huge crow would fly down every day and attack yes. him mercilessly, trying to get his hair because of the way it looked. He wanted it for his his uh, nest. Nest. Yeah. Well, we had a problem in Bloomington growing up with crows, and they were like we called them yard chickens because they were huge. Yeah. And we. I don't know. We it just all of a sudden we had like a lot of them, and they were attacking. I remember my sister was running through the backyard screaming because one was dive bombing at her, and she was only like four year, four or five years old. So I'm like, and this thing was like huge. I'm like, <laughs> she was worried it was going to pick her up and take her away. But ugh. I had uh, I was playing in the yard one day, and the neighbors had this giant German Shepherd, right? Uh, and it was my friend's house I was playing at. I don't know this dog, but it comes tearing out of the house while I'm playing, and it's charging me. And the guy that owns a dog just leans out the door and watches it. Doesn't yell for his dog. Doesn't. This dog is frothing and rah, 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 the whole way across the yard. <laughs> and he's coming up, and as he's getting closer, I realize, oh, I'm going to get bitten. And I rear back my leg, and I kick that dog as hard as I could in the face. And the dog stops, sits down, and just looks at me like, dude, what did you do that for? (laughs) And then the guy comes out, and he goes, you just kicked my dog. I go, it was going to attack me. It was charging me. I'm so lucky. I was a little guy, man. And I just just hit that dog right. But animal attacks, that's just, well, (laughs) they don't always go so well. No. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we've got uh, Daniel Krauthammer joining us. The point of it all, a lifetime of great loves and endeavors next. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry, This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Tom Bernard here to tell you, Priority Courier Experts has immediate openings for drivers looking for more. Priority drivers are independent contractors who set their own hours, start from their own driveways, and deliver local on-call parcels and freight, which means you're home for dinner every night, and you get paid weekly. Right now, Priority's driver-friendly lease-to-own program has brand-new dock trucks, flatbeds, curtain sides, and tractor trailers just waiting to be driven home. And Priority is also offering a $4,000 sign-on bonus to qualified drivers. So if you've got the skills, we can get you qualified to start driving a brand new truck in as little as three days. Calling all drivers. Come get the $4,000 sign-on bonus you deserve for all the knowledge and experience you bring to the delivery business. Call our fleet reps right now at 651-748-4477 or visit them online at Priority.com. Priority Courier Experts. Every time you call us, we deliver. We're back. This is the Tom Bernard Show. I'm Dave Schrader sitting in for Tom. Joining me now, Daniel Krauthammer, promoting the book, The Point of It All, A Lifetime of Great Loves and Endeavors, created and compiled by his father, Charles Krauthammer, before his death. The Point of It All is a powerful collection of the influential columnist's most important works. Daniel, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you here. Talk to me a little bit uh, about the book and and compiling this. Did your father pass away while the book was being finalized or while he was still in the midst of, of putting this book together? Yeah, it was um, right in the middle, uh, I would say. So the book uh, is a collection of his columns, essays, speeches, and and a lot of never-before-published work from all throughout his career. And it was something that he had started and he had been working on for quite some time before his health crisis struck uh, at the end of 2017. And uh, when he was in hospital, I was there with him and uh, with him the whole time and helped him to continue working on it. Um, but uh, at the end, uh, he knew that he wouldn't be able to finish it himself, and so he entrusted it to me to finish for him. Uh, so most of what you see in the book now is his and he had placed there, but there was a lot of work still to be done. And so in all the months uh, since then, that was really the, the top priority in my life, was completing the book and making sure 
uh, it was finished up to the standards that he set and that his last work deserved. Well, and as the winner of a Pulitzer Prize and having run his article for, what, 33 years in the Washington Post? Yeah. And then syndicated yeah, in more than was, 400 uh, newspapers worldwide. What a remarkable achievement. Did uh, Was it hard to pick from that vast array of, of different writings and choose what should be represented in the book? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, uh, as I mentioned, he had chosen most of what's in the book, but there was still a, a very significant amount that needed to be added and, and reworked and, uh, and rearranged. And I went back, actually, and reread essentially everything he had ever written, which is almost 2,000 columns, wow. essays, speeches, and other works. Um, so it was a lot. And, uh, and there was so much more I wish I could have put in the book because there was just so much that spoke, uh, you know, both recent events, but also stuff from even decades ago that spoke through time and really felt just as relevant today uh, as it did back then. And so it was, it was hard choosing them, but I, I tried to make sure it was, it was both the best and representative of the, the most important uh, and moving arguments I think he made, and also ones that tie the book together and, and combine many different topics that he talked about, from politics to baseball to his personal life, um, and tie them together with what I think is a very clear underlying philosophy and approach um, to everything in life. And what a remarkable legacy to leave behind for you and and the family to have that kind of wide breadth of, of topics and issues and information that he wrote about, thought about, you know, put together. It, to sit there and go through all of that 2,000-plus documents to, to read through, was it I have to guess that was almost like having him right there with you through the entire process. Yeah, it was, um, you know, it was at once very difficult uh, in a lot sure. of ways. I mean, both intellectually kind of taking all that in, but also emotionally, of course, um, just to to have you know, his thinking there, but not him. Um, but on the other hand, it was uh, it was wonderful in some ways to, to feel him still there with me and my favorite part of all was the, the funny columns, of which there are quite a lot and quite a few uh, in the point of it all. Um, and so when uh, the fact that he could still make me laugh uh, at jokes I hadn't seen before, um, that was probably my favorite part of the entire process. And you're saying that as you go through there and you're realizing that much of what he has written has remained relevant through all this time is, do, do you see in a 33-year span, there seems to be these cycles that run and, and were you able to notice that there was uh, a certain uh, rhythm and meter to what he wrote about and how it might resurface every five, six, seven, eight, nine years? Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was so interesting to me that sometimes I'd be reading these things and I'd really do a double take at the date line and I'd think, could this really have been written 10, 20, 30 years ago? Because it, it feels like it could have been written just yesterday, maybe change a few names and it's the same topics uh, in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, I've thought about this a lot, and I think it's, you know, some, some of it are, are issues that, that do come up cyclically, but I think more so it's that my dad, on so many issues, he would dig below the surface level, below whatever the, the policy argument of that day was. And he would, he would certainly talk about whatever the current issue was, but he would always dig deeper to, to say, okay, what is this argument really about? What are the real you know, political principles at stake here? What, what's the real poles of the argument? And what are the real deeper questions of human nature and, and ethics and morality? Uh, and he would often get to that very deep level, kind of make an argument about the policy issue of the day, but then leave the reader with something deeper to ponder, a question of, uh, of deep human significance that didn't have an answer then and doesn't have an answer now and, and very well may never have an answer. And so it's that you know, it was a very artistic way of writing um, that reminds me of a lot of my favorite movies and music and, and literature. And I think it was that that bringing both logic and art to these uh, issues make them really lasting and, and poignant and powerful in a way that, that a weekly column uh, you rarely find. Would you find, and I've got to guess, I mean, he, he had to ponder what was coming in our future from time to time. Would you see that... that there was fruit to that would would you see his his thoughts and, and imaginations of what we might be facing would actually come come to uh, fruition yeah well you know there's one essay in the book in particular a long 
uh, essay that had never been published anywhere before, uh, featured in a book called The Authoritarian Temptation, where he, he takes on some of this you know, forward-looking aspect of saying, you know, really in a big picture history sense of what, what's the challenge of the next century. And, uh, and he had talked a lot about the rise of populist parties uh, in the Western world and Europe and, and the appeal of uh, the authoritarian style that, uh, so to speak, that he discusses both in Europe and here, and, and really a crisis, a potential crisis of democracy around the world. And um, he identified this as a potential, not, not yet formed, but potentially the next big ideological fight of the next century in, in a way comparable to the, the fight of uh, democracy against uh, communism and fascism in the last century. So, you know, when I saw some of, for instance, he wrote about uh, the problems in France and when those yellow jacket protests were happening a month ago, it, it seemed like, you know, he was speaking right to that moment. Or there's another article where he talked about the Obamacare mandate and its, uh, its challenge to, to some constitutional norms. And the fact that that's now in play again uh, in the courts uh, just struck me again as something that he always managed to, to find that deeper question that even if it seems like it's settled at the time, is something that will come up again and again because it uh, it hits at something uh, that doesn't have a, a final resting answer, so to speak. Were there were there po points through your work and putting together the last bits? Were there parts that you thought, you know what, I think this fits the narrative of what my my father was trying to put forth in this book, but I don't necessarily believe this. Or you know, you you had trouble coming to terms with what was written. And I'm just wondering if there was ever a balance you had to come to of what should go in and should not, you know, and, and remove yourself from it and just let it be your father's voice. Yeah, no, and I, I tried to do that of, you know, he and I, yeah, I'd say broadly we agreed on a lot of things, but we, we certainly disagreed on, on various topics and, you know, found ourselves on, on a little different part of the spectrum on a lot of issues. And there were certainly some in the book um, uh, climate change comes to mind as one where we wouldn't, I wouldn't say we were opposing, but, but I was on a, a slightly different part of the spectrum than he is, let's say. So, you know, I wouldn't have written, let's say, some of the, um, the stuff he wrote about it, but I thought he, you know, he chose several of those and, and I chose some that abetted it and, and made sure that it made his argument, which I think is a very powerful and, and reasonable and good one. Um, so there were other uh, parts like that, too, where I, I knew that he wanted it in there. Uh, and I and throughout the whole book, I was trying to make sure it was his voice. You know, I, I'm the editor of the book, not the author or the co-author, and I was very much trying to make sure that it conveyed what he thought and he believed um, as best I could put it out there on his behalf. As he was struggling in the end, there did, did he realize the, you know, just that this was this was the end that what he was doing, what he was putting together, was going to be his final work. Um, Health-wise, he just... knew it, but we, at the yeah, at the point, actually, when he knew it, it would be his last work. Um, he he that we focused on, I'd say, more important personal things at that point. So it was when things were there was a long period of time when uh, when his cancer had not returned, when things were looking good, and we thought there was a light at the end of the tunnel, and that's when he was. He had continued working on it, um, so it was when he received the final prognosis, which was only a month uh, before he passed. Um, he stopped working on it then, and he he handed it over to me uh, at that point. That's that's going to be something, right? To be battling and knowing now the fragility of life. I mean, it's one thing when you know that it touches other people when it is in your life, and then having a retrospect to look back at of what is it that you want to leave behind what, you know, and, and collecting just a small portion because out of 33 years and thousands of articles to put into one book yeah. and really boil it down, that's, that's gotta be a very hard task to do. I would guess just for yourself. Um, was he pretty clear in, in understanding of what he wanted to do or did it change? Do you think as his, you know, as his health would change and, and what he thought the important voice of the book should be? I think he had a pretty, uh, I mean, it, it evolved, but I, I actually don't think it changed um, kind of fundamentally in, in how he looked at it. He was always choosing, he had, you know, these columns he had wanted to put out, you know, book in some form for quite some time and 
and I think he was really he had a core selection and he was trying to figure out you know how to make the different sections of the book whether it was about medical ethics or or foreign policy or uh, or uh, you know his his friendships and and kind of the great lives of the great and the good so to speak um, how to fill those out and how to connect them um, you know so he he had a, a, a vision that I tried to get my sense of when we worked together on it um, and after he passed when it was my duty to take it on I did look for for some things that I think you know he maybe wouldn't have put in himself um, in that he was somebody who he didn't talk about himself a lot uh, and I think that was his style and and just the way of his being but he but now but I think he lived his, the example of his life so powerfully um, that now that he's gone I wanted something to be in the book to speak to that example to how he lived his life and so there were a, a very few times he spoke and wrote publicly about his own story his own career and his life and family and, and really his philosophy and approach to life um, that became one of the, the most meaningful chapters to me in the book um, so it was a very hard balance making sure that all these parts were in there and the way that that he would want them but also knowing that it's different now that he's not here anymore um, but I I hope and believe that he would uh, he would approve of, of how the book turned out was was there a surprise or two in there for you as you were reading through these uh, these articles and, and papers? Um, you know, I'd say again, probably the most surprising thing was how prescient some of the older ones felt to me, um, and I even had to insert some uh, some dates into them in the middle of the text because I thought people wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't have any clue otherwise that they were actually written um, so much longer ago, um, but. Um, you know, and, and, and also, I think, reading some of these older ones, I was surprised to think, wow, they were arguing about this topic back in, you know, <laughs> 1991 or, or whatever. I, like, I thought that was, like, my generation's issue. You right. Know? Um, so it was, it was interesting to see how, you know, on the one hand, maybe it's depressing that we're still arguing about the same things. But on the other, maybe it's like, hmm, well, everyone thought everything was going to hell in a handbasket back then. And you know, it didn't turn out that way, and so maybe some of the issues we're wrestling with now aren't quite as dire as as we tend to think of them in the moment. Well, Daniel, thank you for stopping by the show. Again, the book is called The Point of It All, A Lifetime of Great Loves and Endeavors uh, by Charles Krauthammer and Daniel Krauthammer. Uh, we wish you much luck and success with the, uh, with the book. Thanks so much. Thank you, and stay tuned. When we come back, John Farrick is going to join us. Uh, with the popularity of the Making a Murderer series and season two on Netflix. He has written a book called The Wrecking Crew, Demolishing the Case Against Stephen Avery. This takes a, a very interesting look at the Hallback case and uh, Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey, and what has been going on. Where is this story going, and are we going to see some kind of resolve? We'll talk with John Farrick when we return. You're listening to The Tom Bernard Show with Dave Schrader. 